Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. I have Lucy Elvin on the program today. She has a novel out on Soft Skull. It is called The Weak Spot. And it's one of the stranger books I've read this year. I've read a handful that they, they fall into the strange category in terms of the effect that they had on me. And this was certainly one of them. It casts a spell. And uh, it's a unique and impressive debut. Lucy Elvin has written for publications, including the London Review of Books, Granta, and Noon. She is also formerly the deputy editor of The Believer magazine. And she now lives in London. I had a great time meeting her and talking with her. You're going to hear that in just a second. Today's episode is made possible by Harper Books, publisher of Snowflake, the best-selling debut novel by Louise Nealon. This is a TNB book club pick for September. It got amazing praise from Roddy Doyle, who calls it, quote, mad and wonderful. I thought I was reading one thing and then discovered several times that I was reading a different, even better thing. And quote, Snowflake is a powerful and haunting debut from a very talented young Irish writer. It's a novel about love and family, depression and joy, and coming of age in the 21st century. That's Snowflake by Louise Nealon, available now from Harper. Hey, everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People podcast. If you're like me, and if you love George Saunders, you're not going to want to miss this. As a literary podcaster and a devoted reader and a fan of the arts, I try to do my best to support the public humanities. That's why I hope that you'll join me in attending Humanities New York's annual benefit event this year. Join New York Times number one bestselling author George Saunders, a past guest on the Other People podcast. He will be in conversation with author and professor Imani Perry for Humanities New York's third annual History and the American Imagination 
benefit. The live discussion will take place online on October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Purchase your tickets at humanitiesny.org and use the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, other PPL, and get half-off membership tickets. That's humanitiesny.org and use the offer code OTHERPPL. All right? I'll see you there. All right, so my guest today is Lucy Elvin. Her new novel, The Weak Spot, is available from Soft Skull Press, and it was delightful to chat with her about this book, how it came to be, how she works, why she works, and, uh, you know, hearing her thoughts about the future. So let's get to it. This is Lucy Elvin, and her novel, One More Time, is called The Weak Spot. Yeah, I wasn't trying to start from the perspective of a person who is angry at her her reader, who uh, I was, yeah, not even imagining having a reader, so I wasn't... But um, that's a really nice thing to hear, and I don't think there are lots of, like... I, yeah, I haven't tried to make it complicated, um, but I also don't feel like I started in a very, you know, like from a place of like great intention as to what it would be. So I think that it 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 isn't it is quite a mysterious book without um without intending to be. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think that's what you're kind of saying about uh, the similarity with um red pill which i haven't read but someone else said that to me as well that 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 kind of destabilizing quality and um well it's something that i enjoy as a writer destabilizing the reader but it's not because i'm angry with the reader it's more because (laughs) it's quite (laughs) it's quite a fun uh well it's fun to destabilize yourself isn't it when you're writing and to kind of see how one thing one sentence that you have will react with another one and that's that's what i was playing with okay so let's say you say it didn't start with any like you know intention to you know assault your reader or whatever but where 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 did it start and you said you didn't have like a strong sense of intention uh, around publication even when you were writing this like how did it start what's its origin story um well i you know i've never this is a dangerous thing to say, but I've never really wanted to be a writer. Um, I was an editor for a long time um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I, you know, we don't live in a in a world where editorial jobs grow on trees and there are more of them in the US than there are in the UK. And I came back from a stint working in the US and after a while, you know, needed something new to do and decided I should write a book because I felt like I'd been working in language for a while and I also had been writing some short stories and um and so I had I had I basically set myself the task of I'm going to write a book see how it goes um and and so so then I had this idea about the pharmacy which was um something based just based on a piece of gossip that someone told me that a friend of mine had moved to the Falkland Islands and the pharmacist there just knew everyone's business and used it in a really manipulative way because there weren't that many people on the islands um and 
you know, was incredibly powerful as a result. And yeah, I just used that and a setting which I I knew quite well, which was this, um, well, it was based on this part of France that my family's from and put them together. And that was, that was it. And then it, it just happened. That's interesting. Uh, I was wondering about that. You know, I was wondering about the, the town in your book, which is, you know, it's not s- specified if I'm recalling correctly, but it reminded me, I was thinking like Switzerland. I was trying to place it somewhere <laughs> in Europe. Um, like yeah. I was thinking, you know, some kind of Alpine village. Uh, but you say your family's from France? Yeah, the center of France, which is this like, very volcanic part of the country. It's really wild. Like basically, apparently, according to Wikipedia, so who knows, but it's the most rural part of all of Europe. Um, and there are there are wolves and boars and um, it's a part of France that no one visits. What's it called? It's called the Auvergne. Oh, I want to go. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's actually an inn. There's this little inn that's opened two villages along from where my family's from. And until when I say no one goes, I mean until recently. But this inn has become incredibly cool. And now all these like amazingly dressed hipsters come to visit. And, um, you know, it's, you know, cheese makers, coffee roasters, film directors have all moved to this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. Um, And it's really weird. It's just kind of so you know, unimaginable, um, a few years ago, but now it's, now that's how it is. So. Okay. And what's the name of the little town or is it, do you want to keep it under wraps so people stop moving there? (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Well, so there's this little village called Chassignol, which is nearby, um, which is where the inn is, but no, there's not, there was no like specific town that I was thinking of. It's more like just, you know, when you spend a lot of time in a, in a place you have a very strong, especially as a child, right? You have a very strong feeling for um, for it. And as you get older, you sort of try and explain it to people And because no one has been in this case. You know, it's very hard to do. Um, and sometimes, you know, when I was small, I would, I would invite friends and I would, I would be like, they probably hate it here. Like, you know, we'd come, we'd go on holiday together and then the holiday would be like full of the worst experiences they'd ever had because it would be like really hot and kind of it would just always feel a bit dangerous. Like there was just like the the rivers were very like the currents were very strong, but we would go like canoeing on them. It was just like a lot. And, you know, I think on summer holiday, people just want to kind of go to the beach, or whatever. And it was never that it was always like we ran away from a sinister looking woman in a window or like, you know, it was always like. Um, high adrenaline stuff (laughs) Um, and then they would go home kind of completely like bruised from their adventures and their parents would be really concerned it was it was just a lot and did you go there every year was this like a summer trip for you for for months um, every year yeah oh wow okay Uh, it's funny too you talk about all these like hipsters moving to some remote location but I feel like the pandemic made this sort of thing much more prevalent and much more intense. I think a lot of people reevaluated what they want from the place that they live or, yeah. what, or what they need. You know, a lot of people realize like, wait a minute, I don't need to be, you know, in the middle of a big city to do what I do. I could be somewhere lovely and serene and, you know, away from all this. Yeah. And then there's <laughs> just, then there's just the issue of people wanting to escape the virus. And, you know, there was a lot of, I think there was a lot more incentive to be someplace in the middle of nowhere you know, last year yeah. than there has been. So do you think that's fueling 
this move to this little village in the Auvergne? No, because I think it, it started before before that. But there was a moment last summer where I went. There was a brief window where we could travel, and I went to the Auvergne, and it was um, it was so dreamlike because I'd been stuck in my little flat in East London, and you know, then there was suddenly these enormous like lilac and blue kind of vistas and it was just so peaceful the virus hadn't hit the Auvergne yet because it it was several months behind because there are so few people and it was just it was just so gorgeous and it made it it made me really want to move there and it was actually the first time I felt like uncomplicatedly positive about the place um but no uh well actually I, I'm sure there are people who are riding it out there but I don't know because I haven't I haven't been one of them, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> and okay, so your your parents are French of French descent. My mom, my mom's French, yeah. Your mom is French, okay. And so you speak French, yeah. And but yet you grew up your entire childhood in England. Um, well, I was born in London. We were we moved to Paris when I was really small and lived there for a year. But I grew up mostly in um, in Oxfordshire. Okay, and so. With regard to your book, uh, I mean, we've kind of I've kind of got a sense of how, of where the town in the book comes from. Uh, did you have a sense of what kind of story you were telling? I, I know, like in reading reviews of the book, and also in wrestling with it in my own head, like trying to to categorize this book is a little bit difficult. Like, yeah, it resists. Like, I think some critics have been like, "Well, it's not a fairy tale. It's fable. Yeah. It's fable like you know." Like, yeah, how do you how do you define it? Um, well, in terms, I, I don't define it. Um, I, it's, it's in short chapters. It's kind of, it's a short book. Um, it's a bit like a novella in some ways, I think, um, except the, for the fact that it's in short chapters. Um, but in terms of what it is <laughs> um i think you could say i mean you could do it in different ways you could say it's kind of a string of of short stories or you could say um it's a quite a mysterious book it's quite a psychological book it has i can see why people say it's a bit fable like because it has this kind of um like hmm. I feel like the way that events unfold in it is a little bit unlike some contemporary fiction but I I can't really put my finger on it and I kind of think I write like that whatever I write so it's not necessarily the book it's just you um it's me it's yeah. unique it's unique and I guess like maybe like a better way of phrasing my question is like did you feel like as you set out to write this that you were working in a tradition like are there is there a ah. like a, a category or subcategory of books in this vein that you really like and were inspired by no um no i didn't i i guess like the the tradition i can kind of say that i definitely do work in is because i've written lots of short stories for diane williams's magazine noon i think that like in terms of how i move from one sentence to the next that's that's been very formative but in terms of the format of the book i hadn't really um i think well, there's a i want to yeah. stop you you said in terms of how you move from one sentence to the next like what do you mean by that exactly like 
like mm, I don't so I think kind of related to what you were saying about feeling kind of unsettled I think that I'm quite interested like I collect lots of sentences and I'm quite interested in putting them together and seeing how it will feel if I just kind of string them together and I don't really know I don't necessarily have an intention for what the overall story will be as a result of having done that um but I mean I do want it to feel like a you know I do want there to be an overall story I'm not just doing that in a kind of like completely you know annoying experimental way but um more like um I kind of want to see what comes out of like if there's something unconscious or if there's something that will kind of emerge if I yeah if I listen to (laughs) this sounds completely mad I never I've never articulated this before but like if I if I listen to how these sentences um make me feel if their energies are kind of put together yeah I do sound completely mad so don't ask me that kind of question no I'm glad to hear that I'm glad that we're breaking news here this is the first time Lucy Elvin has ever uh divulged extra extra (laughs) coherent writing (laughs) no no but like I think my listeners and and certainly me I like I'm always fascinated to hear how people do their work and this sounds unique Mm. uh when you say it's like to do with like the rhythm as well like the kind of um like you said there was a kind of musicality I like that because it it, that's how it feels I feel like there's a sort of carving out process which I don't really it's 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 not that I don't understand it but it's just completely intuitive and it's to do with how it makes me feel it's not to do with um um me having a plan okay Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when you say you collect sentences, yeah, um, does this just mean that you're pretty loose in terms of your drafting process? Like your early drafts, you're just going <laughs> and then you cut 
you know what I'm saying? You have a bunch of sentences and then you start to like cut and maybe move things around and juxtapose one against the other. Or is it more that you like have some file where you just like write sentences that have no connectivity to one another at first blush and I then do you both. Yeah. Both. Both those things. Yeah. So I have a file. So for instance, like I'll visit. I was just thinking about this before we before we started talking, I went to visit like a castle of a king. I think it was like William of Orange. He was very unpopular. No, maybe it was the guy before William of Orange. Very unpopular king. And they, the people were so happy when he, he his horse tripped over a molehill um, and he died. He fell. Um, they, the people were so happy that they like toasted the the whole, the the mole <laughs> i think the people of britain or england i guess at the time toasted the mole and there was this like amazing sentence that i saw when i was at the castle on the wall where i was explaining this um and like i thought i think i wrote that down and then sometimes like i'll miss hear something and i'll write that down or i'll misread that happens quite a lot i'll be reading a book and then i'll misread it and the way in which i'm misreading it sounds feels to me more interesting than what was on the page so i'll write that down that kind of thing okay and so are you writing this stuff in your phone or do you always have like a notebook handy no uh, yeah wherever i can like on my phone on my note and yeah wherever and then the other thing is yeah i'll keep it like you say i'll have like a draft but it's not even a draft it'll just be like a diary and then if i find things that are or like email like in my email my outbox sometimes i'll find i've written a really funny sentence I think that you say weird stuff when you're not thinking about it. So I think it's best to write when you're not really thinking. And then you find kind of these sentences that feel um, like treasure in some way. But they're just kind of, it's because you're letting on something that you didn't mean to. And the writing, or... car- and the writing carries in it like an authentic energy. Yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that. I think like once it's like stripped of self-consciousness, yeah, then it probably has like more magic in it or something or like, yeah, I don't know, just more energy. It's more, it connects on a better level. Like I, I think of, uh, yeah. like I'm reading a book right now that is derived from a series of talks that were given mm-hmm. and it's so enjoyable to read. It's lovely mm-hmm. to read and it's a refined uh, transcript it's not just like a raw transcript it's been edited and polished but it has the energy of the spoken word in it mm. and I don't think it necessarily has to be this it doesn't have to be like derived from a transcript but I just think that it I think the deeper quality is what we're talking about is that it, it mm. lacks some of that self-consciousness that happens when yeah. you sit down to write prose fiction you know that all that kind of labored thing yeah yeah and yeah. I don't know. I guess it's just an expression of personal taste, but I love that on the page. And I think that's why I think that's why I responded to the m- music in uh, your book. It's just like such a each. I'm not even a, a reader who normally notices that sort of stuff. But each sentence on the page, I was like, God, oh, this just has like such a delightful music to it. I'm glad because not much happens. So <laughs> you got to you got to give them something <laughs> i i would i would push back against that here's something else i would say about the book i think a lot happens a lot of it is psychological but you know if we're going to use fairy tale or fable as like a like a, a kind of a broad way of describing the effect of your book one of the things i noticed is that you know this is a story that unfolds according to an odd logic that's very much its own um 
It's a, yeah. it's, it's like the real world, but not quite. A lot yeah. can happen very quickly. Like a lot of really dramatic stuff can happen in the course of like a sentence or two. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a really like high level of velocity. Like you're working in these short chapters and I found myself consistently surprised by the speed at which things were happening that I hadn't seen coming. Um, and like I said, this book like worked on me in an, in a, in an odd way. And so I I guess as a reader, I was finding myself following along in a, in an almost childlike way, you know, like what's going to happen next. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. And the thing about speed is interesting as well. Um, I guess, you know, I think I wrote, I wrote it in that way as well. I don't think it was, um, trying to put someone through something that they had, you know, hadn't experienced. The, the, something that someone said to me that I found really interesting was someone compared it to, um, a painting, but they were like, it's like a cartoon. It's like a very brightly colored cartoon for children. I thought that was so interesting because, um, because that makes sense. I think that there are these kind of, I don't know, is, is, yeah, there, there are these kind of, um, the way that the characters came out, I've never written a book before. The way that they came out felt almost like too vivid for me. And even when I read it now, I'm like, I, you know, I don't know if I can handle how vividly these, it's not because they're perfectly drawn. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I just, I think that there is something kind of cartoonish about it. And, and I like that also do you say there's a kind of strange logic because that's what I was trying to say earlier when I was talking about fables and how events move forward in, in them in these kind of surprising ways where you're not it's not like um teased for a long time or there aren't necessarily obvious cause cause and effects it's just like um oh yes of course that would um it's kind of a strange cause and like there is cause and effect otherwise it wouldn't be interesting but there's a kind of a strange cause and effect um and that is interesting to me i i find like the way that one thing progresses into another or transforms into another like fascinating which is kind of what I was trying to say about the sentences at the beginning like the the kind of um how yeah how it feels to put one sentence after another and how that will create different effects yeah so for readers or for listeners who have not yet read like <laughs> broadly speaking uh like in terms of like a you know a summary of what the book is about it is about a narrator who moves to a cloistered European mountain town somewhere. And mm-hmm. she takes a job at a local pharmacy. And the pharmacist is this guy named Mr. Malone, who is sort of similar to the, uh, you know, you earlier you were talking about the, uh, the origin story of this, uh, guy in the Falklands is that right the Falklands mm-hmm. yeah uh he's kind of like the town patriarch in a way yeah and which is sort of strange to you know you don't normally think of the pharmacist as the town patriarch though I could imagine how it could happen because you do get details about a person's intimate life through stories of their health and well-being and I can imagine how somebody could manipulate that dynamic to his advantage um and then it's about how this narrator 
like how her life is sort of taken over by this job and by this guy and all of the like dramas and melodramas that he creates uh, both in the pharmacy and in his relationships with various townspeople. How did I do? Is that halfway decent? <laughs> I think that's very good. It's better than what I could do, yeah. Um, but I just want people, you know, who haven't read to have an idea of what this story is about. Yeah. Um, do you, since you didn't kind of start out with a plan yeah, and you were kind of working intuitively line by line almost, yeah. do you have a sense of what the, what the book is about, like psychologically from a personal yeah. standpoint after, after the fact, like what is your read on what you, what came out of you? Why did this book come out of you? And uh, what was what was bothering you? <laughs> oh, what a dangerous question. Um, well, I think that it's a book about someone who it's a first person story, right? So it's about a person who is um, in denial about the events happening around her. And I was interested in how you can maintain a level of denial when faced with quite obvious manipulation and why people do that. Why do, um, pe why do people do that? I don't know. I think one of the, one of the things I came to when I was writing was people really hate not knowing what's happening. And so you invent reasons for things that you don't actually understand because ambiguity is very painful and intense. Um, and uncertainty is very painful and intense. And often, you know, if if there's if there is uncertainty, uh, we are more likely to blame the people who seem to not be giving us the information as opposed to the people who are in power. So I think, you know, like victim blaming comes from from that sort of that sort of mentality. That's my most generous interpretation um yeah and i think it also comes from being quite uh, someone who listens quite a lot to people uh, to other people talking um being someone who's quite um unsure about how to how to narrativize things like in their life <laughs> and uh uh, and yeah, and my narrator is the same. She's she's listening to people um, telling her stories and sort of getting carried away in that as a way of not engaging with her life. Yeah. Wait, is that what I'm doing on this podcast? Is this my entire? I last... don't know. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. Well, I, but I do respond to that element of your book. You know, the way that this pharmacist, you know, and, and so much of her daily work and existence is about listening to other people and yeah. hearing their stories and trying to help, you know, trying to absorb, trying to help, yeah. you know, difficult medical information or the woes, you know, physical and otherwise that people might confide in her um, right. with, and then trying to receive that and then be either, I don't know, maybe just a sympathetic ear, but also maybe giving some advice um, I guess I, 
I'm not exactly in that situation, but I do think about listening maybe more than more than most people. Um, yeah. Because of the nature of what I do. Um, did you... I have a question. Yeah. For you, um, do you feel like you have sort of strategies for how to listen? I mean, I'm sure you do. Like how to encourage people to talk. Yeah, I mean, the only one that I could really point to that I stick to with any regularity is that I try to be as candid with my guests as I would hope that they would be with me, you know, as a method of being uh -huh. like an honest broker and hopefully like establishing some level of like rapport and trust. You know, I don't think right. I should, I don't think I should be in a conversation with, cause I, I don't consider it like an interview in the most traditional sense. I consider it a conversation and I try to approach it from that standpoint. Like obviously I'm moderating, so it's a little bit more of me as the interrogator, but um, that's the one. And then otherwise just making sure that I'm alert and really paying attention and trying to anticipate what the listener at home might be asking himself or herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So kind of creating a sort of symmetry between uh, you and me in talking, like when you say being as open. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I just don't think that I should expect you to be super candid yeah. while I hold my cards close to the vest. That's not interesting anyway. Uh, yeah. You know, I like, like as a listener, I like to listen to two people talking candidly and. Well, know. yeah, that makes sense. And I think that that is probably that's actually a dynamic that I thought about in writing a bit because you know when you're writing you use um other people's stories you use things that have just happened around you and then after a while you're like well should I put something of myself in here because it feels like I need to balance it out in a in a sort of in a yeah there's this kind of asymmetry to it and I mean you're always using yourself is the answer but you but but how like um you know, the minor writer actually doesn't really necessarily talk about herself. I was going to say, much. I was going to say, and I don't think Mr. Malone does either. I mean, they draw people out. Yeah. I don't necessarily recall them divulging too, too much. Like, I feel like the narrator no, keeps her cards pretty close. She does. She does. And I think she doesn't know herself very well, but I, um, when I remember writing like, you know, there's a chapter that talks about where she lives and she says I lived in this house um which stuck out into the pavement I can't remember what the phrase was and um and when I wrote that I felt like wow I'm really telling the reader way too much <laughs> that's a very basic piece of information um and it's obviously it's not about me but it's it felt like it was um I was I was letting the reader in on something really personal but I guess it I was sort of channeling someone who doesn't really give anything away <laughs> um, just to say, you know, this is, this is how my house is and this is how it's painted and this is how I feel about it. Um, yeah. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the other people podcast. If you're anything like me, you sometimes struggle to find the right book. Has this ever happened to you? You go to the bookstore, you wander around, you look at a million books, you walk out of the store empty handed cause you couldn't figure it out. You were overwhelmed. The same thing can happen with the uh, audiobooks. It can happen with podcasts. You know, it's just like a lot of work trying to figure out what you need. But when it comes to reading, I have some good news for you. 
there's a service called Scribd that makes it all better. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've already read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I love Scribd. It has streamlined my reading life. It's all right there in one place. It's more efficient. It's more fun. It's more effective. I find things I didn't even know I wanted. It's right there in front of me. With Scribd, you have the world's most fascinating library at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. And you get millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, all right there. It's incredible. It could not be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases involved. Automated suggestions, hand curated picks. You can easily switch between title genres and formats right there from the app. And you can discover must-read new work from celebrated authors like Roxanne Gay, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Best of all, right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get a free 60-day trial for Scribd. A 60-day trial for free. Just go to try.scribd.com slash OPL and get that free trial. That's try dot s c r i b d dot com slash o p l and get sixty days of scribd for free. All right, go do it and get reading. So oh, another thing I want to ask you, um, in a, on a somewhat related note, you know, is that you have this this Mister Malone character who's the the villain of the story to mm. the extent that it has one. I don't know. For me, he kind of was. You know, he's, he's He's sort of the uh, the town father, but he's also very manipulative, and he uses yeah. he uses his power to get more power. He runs for mayor of the town, and you know, kind of leverages his work at the pharmacy to to gather more power for himself. And I'm just wondering how much of you was responding to the political moment that, like, the Western democratic world seems to find itself in in recent years, like. Also, just like gender dynamics and the way that they've played out for, you know, for forever. Like, yeah. Did, did you, at what point did you, at what point in the writing did you look at this <laughs> and perhaps sense some corollaries? Um, well, I certainly wasn't um, thinking about populism um, or Trump, because I'm not against populism. I, I worked for a, um, I worked for a series of like, like quite left-wing newspapers and magazines, and I think that it's good that people should be involved in democratic processes. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not against um, against that. Um, but I, obviously, I do, having worked at a series of these kinds of papers and reading lots of um, you know the news quite a lot um i i guess it's seeped in um but well an interest in how politicians behave um on an interpersonal level and how they uh how they talk which i i, I quite like describing the way that people talk i enjoy that um because when i when i read about description i always think of visual stuff but I'm not a very visual person but I'm quite interested in 
thinking about why people talk and what the effect of them talking is like sometimes it has a small effect you know just um i pass on a piece of information and sometimes it will be like by saying you know um i don't know i pronounce you man and wife you have a le- it has a legal effect and like in a book everything that you say has a sort of kind of real you know impact on the reader you're creating a reality so i feel like politicians are kind of on the on the road to that kind of speaking where what they say has i mean they just have power basically is what i'm saying but it's interesting if you're working in words to think about (laughs) the kinds of power that words can have right and the kinds of power they can't have um and um yeah i think i think about that a lot too like when i especially like in an election year uh when it's really in your face all the time and you know everybody's everybody's wrapped up in it it really does like the writer in me considers it at its core a a contest of language and storytelling and that's not all that it is but that's a lot of what it is you know these two competing narratives basically if you're having you know a two-party election the way that we have in presidential cycles um and i mean there's a there's so much that i could say about this (laughs) i'll 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 restrain Mm -hmm. myself from getting like too far into it but i i just think that there's the political level, you know, that you touch upon in your book with Mr. Malone and his um, mayoral campaign. But there's also just the interpersonal, subtler levels of language and how it impacts people. And I, I think about this a lot, too. Like, you can really hurt somebody and not even know it. <laughs> Um, yeah. because of something you say, and it might not even be with intent. Like you might accidentally say something that can deeply wound a human being. There are ways mm-hmm. that people can drive others to the depths of despair, like through an insult, like a turn of phrase, uh, mm-hmm. or things withheld, you know, but it's, um, it's something I think a lot about, like, especially because I'm also like a, a person who's got like a, guilt complex like good catholic guilt complex from my youth <laughs> me too like yeah. the ways in which like i oh my god i wish i wouldn't have said that or oh is this person did i hurt this person are they angry with me like or yeah you know all that kind of stuff like it's really fraught territory <laughs> <laughs> yeah and mr malone like one of the things that he does i think this is close enough to the beginning of the book that is fine is that he he tells the narrator that she's she's hurt someone by prescribing the wrong medicine this is helen she, helen's store yeah. what's her name it's helen stole and she's stole. stole and she's sort of like on the edge of death when actually she's just having a reaction she's had before and it's nothing to do with the prescription and that's i think a horrifying thing to do um but maybe because i also have a good catholic guilt complex um and yeah just the kind of um letting someone believe that that um or that they've that they've contributed or not even letting them believe but kind of yeah opening up the possibility through telling them but like he doesn't tell her but he kind of implies right that that's that's that it's her responsibility and something also that she reckon she prescribed when she was feeling 
that's kind of confident and on top of the world and actually that undermines her confidence completely i think that's um it's uh it's a very small thing but it's it's horrible that would be the end of my career as a pharmacist if i gave somebody the wrong meds (laughs) almost kill them i'd be like okay this is not for me like i would never be able to sleep again or something i I think about that with regard to like doctors you know who are performing like really high stake surgeries or or just the possibility of making a mistake that could have a dramatic impact on somebody's health i couldn't do it yeah i couldn't do it my sister's a doctor i don't know how how she does it it's just too real everything's too real (laughs) what kind of doc may i ask what kind of doctor she is um she keeps switching um What's she doing now? She's doing HIV. Oh, okay. Wow. That's good work in the world. Like doing yeah, good. Yeah, very good. Helping people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend who's like a neurosurgeon. Not a you know, not a close friend, but, a, you know, like just going in day in and day out and, and get, like doing that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's a different way to be. Um, and the things that he's seen, you know, like just, I don't know if I, I don't think I have the emotional temperament to be able to handle that (laughs) well i think you have to be quite um sort of in a way quite divorced not divorced from your emotions but completely but you have have a very different attitude to your emotions when i was growing up and my sister decided because we're quite close in age when she decided she was going to be a doctor i um I assumed it was because she liked a good story, and if you're a, if you're a general practitioner, if you're just kind of the doctor. I don't know how how you call them in America, but if it's you know people come and tell you their ailments, and you can it can be anything, which is what she first wanted to be. You hear everyone's stories, and in my mind, that's why she wanted to do it because I couldn't understand that you could maybe be interested in science or maybe want to do um, something very practical because I'm not like that. So I assumed it was for the for the good stories and i think maybe that's also where the book comes from is kind of being quite fascinated by by the sorts of information that you get in that kind of situation but yeah you have to be really divorced from your emotions and sometimes i ask her will you you know will you i don't know check out this rash or whatever i have on my arm and she'll be so harsh about it and i'll be like is it because i'm her sister or is she like this with her patients i don't know well, I think, I think, no, but I, I, I hear you because I have friends who like are either the children of doctors or are doctors themselves. And I find that doctors almost always have an almost cavalier attitude about health, con- yeah. health concerns in their own sphere. Like I'm just thinking of yeah. like, if like, especially they, about themselves. yeah, especially about themselves. they be like, Oh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just uh, pneumonia, you know, <laughs> like I'll get over it or whatever it is. But, um, they just, uh, I think you sort of have to be that way. And maybe I guess inevitably you're going to get conditioned to, um, to, I don't know, just to be able to deal with it without getting too wound up because w- you can't exist like that as a doctor. You, you see it every day, multiple times a day. It's just that at a certain point, I think you just have gallows humor and you are able to compartmentalize yeah. as a matter of survival. I think it's a necessity. And there seems to be like a culture of humor in that kind of environment as well. A culture of what? So it's a, of gallows humor. Like it's reinforced by the people around, like in hospitals and stuff. I feel like, well, um, I, people, people who study to do medicine, they're always like, you know, we work hard and play hard. And I don't know, I feel like it's the kind of place there's a lot of, 
dark humor. Yeah, well, and I think too, like I, I think too about, uh, I think about pharmacies. It's less intimate, at least in the yeah. states. You know, most people when I go to the pharmacy and I'm standing in line to get a prescription filled, there's not too much mm -hmm. chit chat. There might be a little bit of like, well, you know, eat this, take this medicine with food, or don't take it without food. This like, is something I've learned. Pharmacy culture is very different in the states. Oh, it is. So what? What is the? What is the difference? What is the difference between the states? Well, there's loads of differences. Like in 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 France, you a pharmacist is one of the most respected members of the community. Um, it's really like. I mean, it's a whole. It's a whole you know it's it's very very different it's it's like you have to have like lo lots of accreditations and degrees you're very well paid um and you basically have your kind of little space and there needs to be a pharmacy for i think every i can't remember how many but every there's a legal requirement about how many pharmacies there should be in a given area given like the the size of the population and um so they have a kind of almost like a, a fiefdom like they have this kingdom of people who you know they can never be replaced until they move out basically and if they move out then another pharmacist can move in but until then they've got the kind of dominion um in the uk it's not like that it's just like generic kind of places that are usually like chains I think it's quite similar in, in the US. It's like a pharmacist at like a Walgreens or something like that. I think that you can be sued in the US if you make a mistake as a pharmacist. It's very hard to be a pharmacist in the US. It's incredibly stressful, long hours, like not much, not, not very predictable work. Um, and yeah, and you're in this like legally very precarious situation. So it's completely different. Interesting. Lots of, yeah. But in France, well, you're just well, like, you're, you're like the king of your domain king. yeah i mean i think of i've been in you know, i've spent some time in france i'm trying to i don't think i've ever dealt with a pharmacist i think i you know i never got, got to. you go in there but you go in there and do they like is the is the dialogue any different yeah well you firstly whenever you go in anywhere in france you have to say hello to everyone so you go in and you're like bonjour monsieur bonjour madame and then um you have you have to engage with the pharmacist. You can't really just, you know, I mean, you can kind of wander around, but it would be much more normal to go up to the counter and talk to them and say, you've got this problem, like I'd like something. And it, um, I think you will treat them more as a kind of authority than, I mean, I would treat a pharmacist as, I feel like it's it's kind of like, more medical and less consumer um in france as opposed to england i don't know about america no it's consumer like i feel i was just going to say it's like more yeah. diagnostic in france where like the pharmacist is almost like the physician right like that role yeah, there's an element of that yeah and then i also i noticed this when i'm in france the the responsibility to say hello and greet is incumbent upon the customer <laughs> in france whereas right. like in the states it's the shopkeeper who's supposed to be like hello how are you today sir but in france you go in it's like you're in there yeah. this person's store it's it's on you to say bonjour to them yeah yeah i hadn't thought of it before but yeah that's true um it's it's it mean both are nice in different ways i loved it i, I lived in america for a while i loved america and um 
I love the kind of feeling of going into someone's uh, shop and them telling me about that, you know, they would, they would start talking and tell me about their lives and stuff. That was like my absolute favorite thing. Um, because I don't come from a culture where people disclose very much. Like in France, they seem to be friendly. I mean, they are friendly, but it's a kind of, there's a kind of mid-level of formality between being close and being kind of, I mean, you're, converse, you're conversational with everyone, basically. Um, but you don't, you don't really let that much on. And in America, it's like, hey, nice to, thanks for coming into my pharmacy. I'm super, you know, guess what happened to me this morning? <laughs> I, I don't know if this is the, the case with pharmacists, but it can be the case with like people in bodegas and stuff. <laughs> right, right. I didn't go to the pharmacy that much in America. Where did you live in the States? Um, I lived, I briefly lived in San Francisco, very briefly. Um, I lived in Boston and I lived in New York. Hmm. Did you have a favorite? Um, I liked San Francisco and I liked New York. I did, um, San Francisco was like when I finished university, I, I, I got an internship. I got a grant to do an internship in San Francisco. So I did that. And that's how I got into editing. And mm. then I was an editor. Okay. So where was it? Where were Where were you interning in San Francisco that led to editing? At McSweeney's. Oh, really? Mm. And really why do you, it. you I, did like, I, you started to laugh almost when you said McSweeney's. I was like, what? I just, it's just been a long time since I thought about it, but um, I worked at the Believer for a while, for quite a long while, actually. Like, loved it helping like edit the magazine i was the deputy editor oh cool i feel like that's yeah. good i feel like that's got to be good training and i'm curious to know too like having been on both sides of the equation if the if the editing work and like the sort of foundational work that you did there helped to inform your experience of you know finishing a book mm. and then also rounding it into shape then then trying to get it published um, I'm sure it did. It's really hard to say. I mean, I feel like there's a kind of just, I feel like what was great about McSweeney's and The Believer is that there was just a sense of like, the it just as a practical thing, you're, you're trying to make a magazine and it's, you, you see all the nuts and bolts of it. And I found that really exciting. And I think once you get the kind of, um, the bug for just, Create, creating something and seeing um how how much it isn't you know it, it how, yeah like it, it seems completely impossible to someone like me. I don't grow up around lots of writers or people who I didn't know anyone who who wrote um so um well my dad writes but he he writes for himself he doesn't write books or magazines and didn't know anyone in journalism or anything like that so um yeah um i think it, it that helps just to see that it's possible and then yeah i think probably working on a sentence level quite a lot makes you really really attuned to to language and uh to what's like also to the fact that a lot of like to to know what's out there is really interesting um and to know that so many things sound quite similar actually and so you, if you do something that sounds a bit different um if you take a risk then it's worth it because um why not um yeah 
Well, I think that's what you did. I feel like your book doesn't sound like anything that I've read this year or in recent memory. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. I mean, and it, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know, I feel like it can be a little bit fraught if you start out with that as your directive because you've also got to connect, you know, you've got to yeah. be, you've got to draw people in. Um, yeah. But I feel like there's something very unique about uh, your approach and just like I keep saying, like your work at the sentence level. Thank you. Um, no, I don't mean to say that I was just trying to not do what anyone else has done, because I think that would be incredibly arrogant. I, I also, you know, got to read lots of great writers and work with people and see how things develop and see that, that they do develop as well, that you can do a really bad first draft and it can become a really good, like, you know, um, 11th draft. <laughs> how many yeah. drafts, how many drafts did you write of uh, your book? Do you have a sense of it? I know sometimes that's kind of a, a tricky question because a lot of people, you lose count. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have no idea, honestly. I, I've, I've been rereading it to do um, U, the UK edition and um, I keep finding mistakes. So. What do you mean? Like things I would like rather change. Oh, okay. I, I probably shouldn't say. <laughs> like misspellings or, or you mean just like things no. you'd like rather tweak, you know? Yeah, more like that. Like, like, I've changed. I I just am like restless about it. But um, yeah, like the there's a repetition or something like that. Like a word is repeated in two different contexts, very close together, that kind of thing. Right, right. No, I find like I've done that before. I remember doing readings, you know, and like being at the lectern reading from my own book and making changes on the fly as I was reading just because it didn't sound right. Have you ever done that? <laughs> yeah, just, it's horrible. I, I, I can't, it's, it's really like a habit to kick, isn't it? But I can't. At some point you got to be done with it. Yeah. You yeah, just do something else. Just stop, stop, <laughs> let it go. So, so after you left San Francisco and you, you, you go on to Boston and New York, the, I'm t I take it these are different editorial jobs? Yeah, and I didn't do it like that. I went home actually from San Francisco and I worked in the UK. I, I worked from the UK at The Believer and I did lots of different things. I did some plays and some tutoring and made some short films. And then I... Is that right? Which order? I can't remember which order I did things in. Then I, yeah, and, the, and no, I, I guess I moved to New York. Then I did those things. Then I moved to Boston, and then I moved to New York again. Okay, and then now you're back in England. And now I work for a French magazine, so it's huh. always um, doing something that's kind of far away from home. That's nice. I feel like you have like a, I mean, it sounds like you have. Um, I don't know. Like a I like. I'm always jealous of people who are moving around and traveling and getting to live in different spots. I'm at a different phase of my life where it's not simple for me to do that. But um, do yeah, you, do you have a sense that you're planted now in England, or are you gonna? Yeah, are you, are you, that's are... why I said thank God, because I, I I've always been someone who wanted to move around. Like I grew up in basically a community, like in Oxfordshire. We, I went to this school that was this community of expats, and it would be like it was a school that was set up by the EU, the European Union for. Um, the children of the scientists that worked on the nuclear f fusion project and so it would be like people coming in from all over the place and I always thought that was the best way to be that you were always moving around and that you'd, you'd learn to be really social um, and to be able to kind of connect with anyone um, and then 
yeah now having done that a bit I just want to be I just want to be like in a place where I can paint the walls I'm never going to be able to do that but um I'd love I'd love that (laughs) I just want to be settled do you want to be settled in London is that where you want to be yeah and is when you say Oxfordshire like forgive me for not knowing uh the Mm -hmm. layout but is that near like Oxford University is that yeah okay so that's the shire that Oxford is in (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) um and but I, I said Oxfordshire because I didn't grow up in Oxford Okay. Okay. But that's like that. I'm picturing something bucolic. I'm picturing like the countryside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like an Agatha Christie, you know, film. It wasn't like, no, actually it was, it was dry stone walls. Um, you know, a haunted, um, church graveyard, that kind of thing. And, and then, yeah, then we moved more kind of into the town, one of the towns near Oxford, which was kind of less less bucolic, but still nice. Okay. And so not surrounded by a lot of like writers or journalists, as you were saying. Um, like... No. I mean, my, my family's like quite literary, but they're not, you know, they're not in the arts. Well, that's what I meant. But I mean, like living out there, like you, like I, versus like living in London, I would imagine you might yeah. have more like proximity to people who are making a career and the arts or whatever exactly um like i'm from wisconsin and indiana i didn't know anybody yeah when i was growing up who was at least not off the top of my head who was making a living in the arts but you know you live i live in los angeles now and like half the people on my block are doing. (laughs) Uh, yeah i don't know i don't know if that's good or i guess it makes it you know i think of my own kids it's like i guess they probably have they'll have like a greater sense of possibility around that sort of stuff. It's like a lot more natural to them to imagine oh, yeah. that sort of life. I've been today, I've been proofreading a review I wrote of Eve Babbitt's work. Have you read her? No, uh-uh. but I know, she's, I know of her. Yeah. So she's just like a Los Angeles person and she's, she just makes me want to move to Los Angeles. It sounds incredible. And, but she's someone who um, like your kids grew up surrounded by, artists and um and she, yeah she she's she's such an interesting writer she's she's sort of she's quite dismissive in a way like she she's written profiles of like Francis Ford Coppola and stuff but she'll um she'll just kind of laugh at him she'll be like she paints him as this kind of lovable dilettante who like doesn't really know what he's doing and can't work a camera because she's just so blasé about about him and it's really it's really nice um, I can't. I feel, I feel embarrassed that I have. I mean, this is a common refrain in my life. There's so many things I'm embarrassed that I have not read. But as somebody who lives in Los Angeles, I feel like I should have read Eve well, Babbitt's by now. Well, maybe it's not for you because you live in Los Angeles. Like I, if I had been, or if there was any prospect of be going, maybe I wouldn't bother. But I haven't, so I have to. <laughs> have you ever? You, so you've never been here before? No. Oh, okay. You didn't make a swing down when you were in San Francisco. No. Okay. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People Podcast. If you're like me, and if you love George Saunders, you're not going to want to miss this. As a literary podcaster and a devoted reader and a fan of the arts, I try to do my best to support the public humanities. That's why I hope that you'll join me in attending Humanities New York's annual benefit event this year. Join New York Times number one bestselling author George Saunders, a past guest on the Other People Podcast. He will be in conversation with author and professor Imani Perry for Humanities New York's third annual History and the American Imagination Benefit. 
The live discussion will take place online on October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Purchase your tickets at humanitiesny.org and use the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, other PPL, and get half-off membership tickets. That's humanitiesny.org and use the offer code OTHERPPL. All right? I'll see you there. Um, so I guess like a, another question I would have for you, since you've sort of crossed the line out of editorial and into, um, writing fiction is whether or not you're going to continue. Like, was this a one-off or do you think that, um, <laughs> do you have the bug now? Like, is this something you, you're going to keep doing? Um, yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I'm, I've gone back to short stories for a bit and I've, been writing some non-fiction stuff but i think i'm i'm gonna go back to fiction yeah at some point like a collection of stories um, or a novel collection of stories and then also a novel i think um just because i'm you know because i want to correct like i just want to do it better um competitive with myself and and there are different things i want to write about now um and yeah it's kind of like um i got i got a lot of my kind of i don't know i felt like i had to write that book and now i've done it i feel like quite free and i could write something else <laughs> well you know like an exorcism yeah i but i i uh i got the sense when i was reading the weak spot that there is something else cooking and I don't know why I felt like that. I guess maybe because it's a shorter book. Um, but also mm -hmm. because I felt a lot of like mental energy, like intellectual intellect inside of the book. This is like, it's really hard to describe, but I just had to, I just have a sense that you've got like a, that you're going to be working on a bigger canvas at some point. Um, yeah. No, I want to. I, I have. It. It's really weird doing publicity for a book because then you kind of. Uh, you know, you have to analyze everything. I. I but I. And it, I think it sort of drains you of a little bit of the kind of energy that would go into writing. Like I love. I actually really love. I love being able to talk about. It's an, I don't mean this conversation, which is more of a conversation as far as I'm concerned, but um, but that there's yeah I have it makes you scared to do something else in a way to, to have to analyze it and to wonder you know and I guess also publishing something makes you scared because then you're you, I know that next time I'm going to have to to stand up in front of someone and, and say, this is why I did it. And I don't, I don't know why, but I do want to do something. And I have a sense of it, um, of what I want to do as well, but I'm a bit, I'm a bit, um, daunted by, um, the whole process, doing the whole process again, but I, I'm going to do it. So how, how do you, is this towards the end of whatever publicity cycle you're in for this book or, do you have more ahead of you? Yeah. Do you have well, a... it'll come out. It'll come out in the UK, so I'll have to. To, and that would be that would be really nice because I'll be in person and I'll be able to see people and get drunk. <laughs> um, 
that always helps <laughs> <laughs> it does <laughs> yeah do you have any uh do you have yeah. like, can you offer any hints about like what the future books like what kind of terrain you might be operating on there like do you have an idea of what the stories are well i, I i'd like to do a collection of the short stories that i have been writing with um with noon um longer i mean i need to write some more um but yeah i at the moment i'm really interested in gossip and i guess i was interested in, in a different way with the weak spot but i'd i'd like to uh write a book that feels more more, more salacious and um like that's splashier in terms of what it talks about uh where the narrator is less emotionally withholding in fact maybe completely emotionally incontinent um yeah so why are you fascinated with gossip? I just love... Um... Well, I think there's an amazing piece. I don't know if you... There's an amazing piece in Hazlitt um, by Rachel Connolly about gossip and, and about how in the pandemic we've been starved for it. And... Um... And how hearing stories, even about someone who we absolutely don't know in the slightest, has become really, really exciting. And I have that feeling very strongly. Um, and I think I've always been um, very interested in gossip, maybe for the reasons that you're, you described at the beginning about how speech, when it's transcribed, is really exciting. And I like that kind of feeling. It's got of, um, it's quite meaty. Like if you transcribe gossip, it feels, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of windy and... Also, you know that people aren't really necessarily telling you the whole, like the t they may be exaggerating. Um, that's quite an interesting dynamic kind of exaggeration or like contradiction. Um, and I guess I just want to write about like things that are more shocking than, I, I, I want to write about like sex and I want to write about like people behaving badly and uh, people getting away with it and um, maybe to yeah to explore how 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 i feel about doing that like in a public way as opposed to um yeah like overexposure as opposed to kind of like this emotionally withholding person who i think i feel like i was I think the minority in the weak spot is someone who's very scared of causing like, harm by saying the wrong thing. And there's this kind of care that is in the narrative or this evasiveness that's in the narrative as a result of that. And I, I feel like doing the opposite might be quite fun. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I was reading something with regard to gossip and this is a long time ago, but maybe you've, maybe you've read something similar or touched upon this in you know, reading or research. Uh, about the necessity of gossip as like an evolutionary, like it has an evolutionary function in terms of how uh -huh. human beings have been able to succeed as a species. Uh, have you ever read anything? Uh -huh. about, have you read anything a lot no. about this? Oh, no, I was, I was hoping you could it. remind me of what it was. Cause it was like, <laughs> I think I was like, I want to say I was like bitching about gossip on like a comment board on Facebook. This was like years ago. And then somebody was like, actually, gossip is a necessary evolutionary component to 
healthy societies and all you know they made like this really compelling like anthropological case for why gossip Hmm. must be so maybe there's that's a maybe that's a like an angle you could take i think silvio federici the italian kind of left-wing theorist writes about gossip and says it's a kind of really important thing for women um it's a sort of i mean i guess this is kind of related to like me too and all of that but it, but, she, but she's been making this case for a long time that it's um kind of the equivalent of like the golf course is um for women in that like you, you can pass on inf- information that's very uh important that in, in a kind of um slightly closed arena but i don't it's not just for, for, that's not what i'm kind of thinking about it's more i'm just thinking about kind of how people yeah, I'd love to know about the evolutionary function of it. I'd like how people kind of um, overshare <laughs> and and to think of that as like not a dang- not a kind of not necessarily actually a very powerful thing. More like um, um, like do you, like not to worry about like the con- the consequences of doing that. I don't know. I'm always worrying about the consequences of what I say. So I feel like if you if you say just a lot of stuff and some of it's contradictory, then you just you're just working with like you're just you don't have to worry and you're working with um with this really interesting like meaty material. So that's what I want to do. Never never been very clear about my intentions. Yeah. <laughs> but I know, but it's like I I totally respond to this idea of wanting to take care of what you say and be careful with your words and i think it's i think it's a it's a good impulse you know i as i was saying earlier like you can really hurt people with what you Mm -hmm. say or even with what you don't say like with that in mind it makes sense to me that you would uh want to be careful at the same time (laughs) um i think that it can be taken to extremes you know it's easy to sort of get into like a self-protective mode or you're getting mm. neurotic about like self-editing or i shouldn't say you like i can be that way where i'm too close yeah. you know and i'm i feel like there's got to be some sort of equilibrium between the two impulses like there's the one part of me that wants to just be open and free in conversation and candid and let the cards fall like we're all gonna die who cares but then you know there's another part of me <laughs> Sorry, that's like it's that's true yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's like you know you don't want to be too far in either direction i don't know where the sweet spot is in terms of you know kind of uh you know being in both camps you know at once without leaning too far in either direction yeah i think it's always interesting to test like to start telling a story i find it fascinating when i watch people do this when they start telling a story and they're testing out whether they've gone too far in terms of assuming a level of comfort with the person that they're talking to um do you ever observe this i I have a particular person in mind who i think is a, a master of social situations and he'll he'll begin telling a story and seem to be oversharing but actually it's kind of it's not a way of um it's not a way of gaining power but it's a way of establishing trust i guess because he'll like check in with the person like is this too much or is it um like you not necessarily in so many words but um so i think it's interesting to 
to play with the expectation that other people have of how much you will share um without being methodical necessarily about like always share this much with this kind of person but also without being completely inappropriate yeah so the friend that you're talking about that has like these this kind of like social grace this is a person who's divulging amazing yeah so what did you say no i just said the grace is perfect word for it yeah it's an ability it's a kind of it's the kind of dance yeah i'm 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 always i'm I share your fascination, like people who have, like, I think in particular of, of people who are like just extremely extroverted and who seem to gain energy from social interaction as opposed to being depleted by it, uh, which, which is more like me. Uh, like I love to yeah. talk to people and I love to, you know, but if I go to a party or something and I come home, I just need to lie down. Like I, other people, they could just keep going. And I have a few, I have a few friends like this and, they know everybody's name. They have a million friends and relationships, and they kind of manage all of them effortlessly. Uh, I, I mm. marvel at that. It's a, you know, it's like a gift. But I also can find myself like exhausted thinking about being that person. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Eve Babbitt. So she's that person. She's the one who knew everyone's names and was constantly you know playing playing little games with them um so yeah if you're fascinated by that you should read her i should okay and you then your friend who's in conversation is divulging like as a way of setting people at ease he will share something from his own life i don't know if it's to set people at ease i think it's to create a kind of excitement and at the same time a kind of trust so to like create a growth in a relationship and i've seen him do it with people like i've been to like christmas parties and stuff with him and he'll do it with people who he's never going to see again it's not like there's any ulterior motive it's, it's purely so that they can enjoy each other's company um like much much older women it's it's a it's a kind of it's an act of um camaraderie but it's just it's it's like i guess it's nothing special it's just the kind of thing you think about when you've been in lockdown for a while and how much you miss <laughs> seeing <laughs> that kind of thing um but yeah i think it's very generous it's like an ability to marshal people's expectations of you and to turn them on their head a little bit and then to to see how they react and work with that i think it's very nice yeah yeah i uh i find it to be like a real relief to be around somebody who is open like even if it's like a calculated openness or like a limited openness mm. you know i if i'm in a social situation and there's somebody who can do that um the, the word that I would use to describe it is just relief, you know, somebody who can kind of cut through, the, <laughs> who can like cut through the stodgy, like superficiality of that kind of chatter, you know, and then suddenly it makes things real or looser than it previously was. And people can actually start to be themselves and enjoy a little bit. It can, it, yeah, it can be like, you know glass shattering or something it can have a real impact on the atmosphere is yeah. that what is that what your friend is doing no i think he's weaving a, a web of complicated 
like it's not breaking through something it's more like building something but um but there is an openness to it is it like the opposite kind of is it manipulative it's it's benevolent manipulation yeah (laughs) is it like trickstery is there something is it like a kind of thing where you're sitting there observing it and you're kind of in on the joke but the people no 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 it's not like that no i think he does it for himself i think he genuinely likes connecting with people um and is very adept at it and maybe is quite defensive about how he's perceived and so has had to um develop these ways of putting people at ease which are very sophisticated but maybe not putting people at ease yeah you need you need to write about this guy this guy should be in your book (laughs) i think so (laughs) i think so i'm fascinated yeah um well, I, I really enjoyed meeting you. I enjoyed your book and I'm like extra curious. Like I'm always curious what, you know, if I'm talking to somebody, what, what they're up to and what they're going to publish next. But I'm really uh, extra curious to see what you come up with next because uh, I just, I don't know. I just have a hunch it's going to be um, like really good and very interesting. So I, uh, I hope you get it done sooner than later. <laughs> thank you i'll try um it's very kind of you to say that and it's really nice to meet you as well okay there you go that is lucy elvin and her debut novel the weak spot is available now from soft skull press you can find her online on instagram i think that's the only web presence that she maintains best i can tell once again the book is called the weak spot go get your copy lucy elvin good conversation the other people podcast is offered freely all 700 some odd episodes of this show are available to you for free the entire archive is available for free it's a listener supported show your support makes a difference you can support this program for as little as one dollar a month did you know that there are different tiers different levels of support over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. As you go up to scale, you get stuff. You know, $1 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, and so on. You can get a t-shirt, a coffee mug, a sticker, a tote bag, a book club subscription. I'll write you a postcard. I'll wish you happy birthday. If you like this program, if you listen regularly and you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it at patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you want to write to me the address the email address for this show is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com let me know what you think the other people podcast has its own youtube channel did you know that the entire archive is on youtube now go to youtube search for the podcast other ppl subscribe smash the subscribe button every episode is there on youtube what do you know about that the Other People podcast also has its own official app. It, too, is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's a good app. It's a great way to listen. So, what else? I sold my novel. I'm still uh, on a high trying to absorb that news, trying not to ramble about it too much, but I'm feeling good about that. I've got a lot of good episodes in the pipeline. Stay tuned. 
And uh, maybe there will be a Sunday episode. I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs>